and welcome to the TNW podcast, the show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andrei Regular. I am the head of media at TNW and host and producer of this podcast. Joining me today, as usual, is my co-host and our senior editor, Linia Algren. Hey, Linia, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, Andrea. I survived the thin sheets of ice covering the bridges and uh, cobblestones of Amsterdam on my bike ride here this morning, so it's already a big win. Yeah, this is probably the most uh, dangerous weather condition you can get in Amsterdam, apart from the winds. Yes, we hope that it's sunny wherever you are listening to this podcast as well. Sunny and warm. Preferably. <laughs> so in today's episode, we've got a bunch to discuss. We're going to talk about uh, domestic robots, about micromobility consolidation in Europe, about Elon Musk and Diablo 4, the randomness of coin tosses, and much more. You will also hear an interview with Anton Volovic, the co-CEO at Reface. And Reface, if you don't know, is a Ukrainian scale-up that launched in 2020, and it has made it through first the pandemic and then Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And along the way, it has raised a few million dollars from investors like Andreessen Horowitz. But we're going to start with a story that we covered uh, this past week uh, that was the choice of uh, Linea. So what did you choose? So I chose a story, a funding news story actually covered by our senior journalist Thomas McCauley. I found it to be quite, I think we all had a little bit of a conversation about it when this came up because it's about a domestic robot mm. and a domestic robot that looks quite human, I would say. And so the topic of conversation went sort of how do we actually feel about having a domestic robot doing our chores? Um, and if we were to have one, how much like a human would we actually feel comfortable with it looking? So there's a Norwegian company called 1X that has raised $100 million in Series B to bring this humanoid robot called Neo to market. Neo, for those of you who are perhaps of a, a younger age, <laughs> it's a very nice Matrix reference. If you haven't seen The Matrix, go see The Matrix. The company says it is designed for everyday tasks such as doing laundry and tidying up. Now, the Android is 165 centimeters tall. That is five centimeters taller than me, just FYI. And it can lift as much as 75 kilos in a deadlift. Now, that's definitely not what I loaded the barbell with last time I was in the gym. So it could definitely be useful and uh, potentially save a few backs out there. And what kind of tasks would it be Would it be doing? Like, what can it do? Well, it can tidy up, apparently. Mm -hmm. It can do the laundry. And then it can learn um, tasks through interacting with the world around it. Now, this is a technique called embodied AI. And this enables machines to learn new skills by interacting with material objects and the environment that it's in. So essentially, this bridges the gap between an AI that's trapped in the digital space to one that has some sort of physical senses and mm -hmm. through them can interact with the material world. And you will also be able to chat with Neo, of course, <laughs> in a in a chatbot, chat GPT style kind of way. But in fact, OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, was one of the lead investors in One X's Series A funding round last year of twenty three point five million. Now. One of the main selling points behind Neo is that it is soft 
and light, and it has no pinch points. And the CEO of the company, Bernd Bernich, says that this is um, part of their vision to share safe robots Mm -hmm. with humans. And you can see, if you look at pinch points, for example, you can compare this to Tesla's, say, the Optimus Gen 2 robot, which looks a little bit more industrial compared mm-hmm. to Neo, and I, I would suggest that you go to the to the show notes and click the link to the article so that you can see images of Neo, because he looks. Depending on how you feel about these things, he could either look really cool or a little disturbing, and I will I will leave you to be the judge with that. Uh, but Neo doesn't really have a face. Other than that, he looks sort of like um, human shaped, sort of plushy toy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go for disturbing, definitely. You would go for disturbing. Yeah, I think it depends a little bit also on what, what voice will Neo have, um, how much like a human will it sound. I don't know how many of you have played around with the actual voice chat function of GPT-4, say, but it is, it's quite realistic. So it does spark the question, how will we interact with robots if they're coming to our homes? How will we actually interact with them in our homes instead of just an industrial environment? Um, What kinds of conversations will we be having with them? Because this is a a combination of then, uh, say, a domestic aid, which we have as humans perhaps not treated very well and kind of like robots in our own way throughout history. And then an AI chat companion, which has proven to be quite effectful, not only in movies like her, um, which is also a fantastic movie, but in things like chat bot girlfriends and boyfriends. And there was a a man who was uh, charged with attempting assassination of Queen Elizabeth while she was still alive, who climbed onto Windsor Castle with a crossbow. And in his defense, it came forth that he his chat, his AI girlfriend had encouraged him <laughs> to go <laughs> and engage in this behavior. And so, well, I'm going really far with this now, but it does just come back to sort of the philosophical question of where are we going to be interacting with robots, AI, what shape will they take, etc. in the future? And how will that impact how we perceive um, the technology? And then how far are we actually from uh, being able to buy one? Uh, that's a little bit of a, <laughs> a secret thus far. Uh-huh. So they have not uh, disclosed any launch Mm-hmm. Um, date, but they have released their industrial robot Eve and started shipping her globally. Eve and looks that's... quite, quite, uh, you know, quite pleasant, but not as cuddly as Neo could potentially be. This one does have a face, though. Eve although does I, have although a face. I'm not sure if uh, this face is better than not having any face at all. And then again, I'm, I'm looking at the photo right now. That's uh, uh, in the that's in the piece. Uh, and um, it's it's a very sort of generic uh, drone uh, type of uh, face. So I'm not sure what's more disturbing, honestly, this type of face or having no face at all. What would you go for? 
I believe that probably we could see, um, I don't know what I would go for, to be honest, but I, I think probably we could see customized mm -hmm. uh, robots in the future where we get to choose what we want them to look like uh, in terms of appearance, facial mm. appearance at least. So to rub this up, would you actually want these kind of robots in your household? I mean, I'm a technology interested person. I, I would at least try it out. Definitely. Do you think your partner will be as happy? Yes, <laughs> I do. I think, I think it's that. I mean, it's what we have always sort of dreamt up as scenarios, right? For what a future will look like, and now it's here, and so it feels. As long as there are some safeguards that have been demonstrated that are built into it, then I feel like it would be a shame not to partake in that in that step. My big question about humanoid robots, and I'm not expecting an answer here, but just to say it, is it actually the best form factor for a domestic robot? Do we want them to be bipedal? Do we need them to be bipedal? Wouldn't it be better if they had another sort of uh, shape? Wouldn't it be easier for them to move around? Wouldn't it be easier for them to uh, do whatever tasks uh, they are expected to do? Why, why even try to make them look like humans? Well, I would imagine that the company, that 1X, has done some research into this. So we should uh, potentially get them on the podcast and uh, ask them these questions. Okay, we definitely should. So let's just uh, let's ask uh, Tom to, to get us some contact details and uh, reach out. So watch this space. We will try and uh, ask these questions to the people who actually can answer it. Now, uh, moving forward, after the story that we did cover, we also want to highlight a story that we didn't cover, and this one is uh, about European micromobility. And uh, we wanted to highlight uh, the story about the merger of uh, two major European micromobility companies, namely Dot and Tier. Uh, both companies have been around for a while, you probably uh, know them already, and uh, both companies reportedly uh, have been struggling to reach profitability on their own. There have been some down there have been some layoffs, there have been some rumors, but now it seems like both companies have been able to uh, find a great outcome uh, for themselves and the merger will value the new company at uh, 150 million euros, which is a lot, but also very little. Uh, for context, uh, tier alone used to be valued at 2 billion euros oh. uh, back in 2021. But I mean, those times are That's obviously long gone. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you if you watch this space in general in Europe over the past few years, at some point it first exploded, but then it was uh, it seemed a little bit like it's been in decline just after so many cities got saturated with uh, all the e-scooters and e-bikes and uh, all sorts of uh, e -sh shared e-mobility uh, solutions. And then regulation uh, caught up and uh, some places just uh, banned them uh, altogether or gave limited number of licenses and limited number of vehicles so and uh, i think it, it's been very hard for many companies to make sense uh to, to get to the to like a viable unit uh, unit economics uh, situation apparently uh tier and dot uh, hope that together uh, as a merged uh, joint entity uh, they would be able to become uh, a bit uh, profitable at least this is what uh, they told uh, our friends uh, over at uh, sifted and the new company uh, will also apparently become europe's largest uh, micromobility uh, player 
It's also raising 60 million euros on top of uh, everything else uh, from some of its existing shareholders uh, in a round that's led by uh, Mubadala Capital and uh, Sofina. Uh, they were investors uh, in Tier and uh, Dot. Uh, it is also worth mentioning that, that a few of the existing shareholders decided not to invest, and uh, namely that list includes NotZone, uh, Equity Ventures, and uh, SoftBank Vision Fund 2. So they decided to to stay away and not add uh, any any money into the uh, into the uh, entity uh, that emerges out of this deal. Also, no rebranding is expected at this point. Uh, both brands will be kept alive and both apps will stay operational. You can still download both Tier and Dot uh, from uh, your app store. Uh, what will change, however, is the leadership structure. Uh, it appears that uh, Lawrence Leuchner, uh, Tier's co-founder and CEO, may not have an operational role in the new company. According to the announcement, he is now becoming chairman, uh, but uh, there has uh, no, no other role for him has been announced yet. Uh, the co-founder and CEO of DOT, Andrei Moishnak, uh, he will be the CEO of the new company. And Maxime Romain, uh, who was the COO of DOT, uh, based uh, at least for at some point here in Amsterdam, uh, he will keep his position in the joint entity, so also as the COO. But you said that based here in Amsterdam, but Dot has never been uh, active in the no, Netherlands, No, no, right? they never were present in Amsterdam because uh, it's not actually allowed uh, to have uh, shared e-scooters and shared e-bikes in Amsterdam. But uh, headquarters of Dot uh, were both in Paris and in Amsterdam. It's a little bit of an irony, and I interviewed Maxim uh, some time ago for another podcast I was involved with, and I asked that question, and there's always been hope. Uh, that uh, uh, the Dutch authorities would allow this uh, type of micromobility services to come into at least some cities, but I don't think it's ever it's ever become a reality. At least not uh, not the major scale. There were a few trials, I think, in cities like Breda, for example. Uh, but it seems like the only member of uh, Tears C-suite uh, to be brought into the new company is uh, Alex Geyer, uh, who was the CFO of Tier, and he will now be the CFO of the new company. So this is going to be this is how the the, the new entity will be structured. And I also read a great analysis of the deal uh, by Rebecca Skutak over at uh, TechCrunch Plus, and she pointed out an interesting thing that this deal must have been very difficult uh, to arrange uh, for the parties participating as it involved the reconciliation of two cap tables with two sets of liquidation preferences, so uh, two different uh, sets of investors who had to come together and agree on how the new cap table of the new entity will look like. Additionally, I wouldn't expect it to have been a very easy task to also raise extra money, extra 60 million uh, euros from investors who actually weren't keen on funding the merging startups on their own in the first place. No, I have no idea how they even set about... Um this kind of merger. And uh, the rumors actually have been around for a while uh, that uh, uh, that both Tier and Dot were looking for uh, some sort of uh, acquisition merger, sort of whatever uh, way out and way to get to profitability. But then again, it's still not a given that even in this situation when both sides want uh, to get into a deal, it is still possible in a way that uh, would work for uh, for everyone involved. No, let's see. Let's see how it does in this uh, new entity, and I, you know, all the best of luck to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think the deal closes officially in two months, uh, a bit less uh, from now, and uh, it's also, of course, a big question whether this is uh, something of a sign uh, of uh, things to come uh, in the ecosystem in general this year. But again, because of the 
complexity of this type of a deal, it's probably uh, probably probably make more sense to expect uh, straightforward acquisitions rather than mergers uh, of this uh, of this type across the board. And again, we will always keep you updated uh, on that front. If we cover the story or not cover, you will always hear about it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Now, okay, moving forward to the next uh, segment, which is This Week We Learned. Linnea, what did you learn this week? Well, so I don't usually like to give Elon Musk any more airtime than he already gets. Um, but I, I thought this was a little too good to skip. So because I'm, I'm, I like video games. And apparently Elon Musk has a Diablo 4 obsession. And he just broke the record for an endgame challenge in Diablo 4. It's called Abattoirs of Sin. And he did it in eight minutes and solo, apparently, using his druid level 100. I have not gotten that far in Diablo 4 because, honestly, Baldur's Gate 3 came out. And that was that for my limited game, precious limited gaming time last autumn. But from what I gather, it is an incredibly impressive feat. Um, so kudos to Elon for that. Um, mm. However, he did also apparently spend 17 hours on Christmas Eve playing Diablo. So make of that what you will. And how do we know that? Uh, he shared it on his <laughs> platform. <laughs> Okay, I'm not a Diablo fan like I played when I was uh, much younger. I think the first uh, the first version of it, but uh, not the, not the fourth. But I think you actually this is not the first uh, uh, game in uh, game in fact you uh, you've brought uh, over time. No, I think I well I snuck one in there a little bit <laughs> with Timothy Chalamet yes, and his right. Xbox <laughs> uh, mod controller 360, his old YouTube account. Okay, so you keep bringing your uh, video game stuff into this segment, and I keep bringing random stuff into the segment. So my learning of the past uh, week was that it turns out that apparently coin toss is not exactly random. Namely, these there appears to be uh, a 51% chance, uh, 50.8 uh, to be precise, that the coin that you flip would land with the same side facing upward as before. And this conclusion comes from an empirical study uh, done uh, by a guy named uh, František Bartos, uh, who is now a PhD researcher at the University of Amsterdam. And for this project, he recruited 47 volunteers who together performed some 350,000 coin flips, meticulously uh, recorded um, into into a database. There's even a video on YouTube of a 12-hour coin tossing marathon that they streamed at some point on uh, Twitch. Do we know if anyone actually stayed watching for the entire time? That's a good question. I only saw the I only saw the YouTube version of it. Uh, I think it, it could make for a for a nice uh, background uh, type of what you know. Some people uh, turn on videos of uh, fireplaces on their TVs. You can have a coin tossing, uh, twelve hours of uh, coin tossing on your TV. Why not? Why not? <laughs> so interestingly, however, this result was already predicted uh, sixteen years ago uh, by uh, Stanford physicists. Uh, and their theory at the time of why the bias is there 
is in simple terms that the coin, when you toss it, doesn't turn exactly around its symmetrical axis, but it wobbles a bit off-center, and um, at the end of the day, it causes the coin to spend a tiny bit more time with its initial side facing up. And this is where this one percentage point bias uh, comes in. So I'm also not entirely sure what the scientific value of uh, this uh, study is, but, I mean, just a good thing to know, right? And uh, if you need pure randomness, of course, you can always just conceal the starting position of the coin, mm -hmm. and then no, nobody knows uh, which chance uh, is uh, is higher. Or, of course, you can join the dark side and take advantage of someone who is not aware of this when you're tossing a coin for something very, very important in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you often toss uh, coins uh, for something? I cannot remember the last time I tossed a coin, to be, to be perfectly honest. Do you? I don't have any coins in my wallet. I don't really have a. I don't no, have a coin uh, thing, coin pocket right? in the wallet. So if I need some randomness, I don't really know what to do anymore. <laughs> that's the thing, right? We don't walk around with coins. Let's yeah. let's come up with a with a new way to determine randomness. Yeah, we definitely should just using something that is always with us. I mean, we can always use our phone, of course. There are there are apps uh, upon apps uh, that offer you uh, well, whatever, sure whatever types of randomness you I'm want. I'm sure there's a coin tossing app. But but I but I would much rather do something do something physical. Let's toss our phones. I'm sure there's some bias towards which side flips up, given the the structure of. But the we don't. But but we don't know it. As long as we don't know it, this bias doesn't matter. Okay, true. Then we, <laughs> if you all of a sudden see a 47-hour phone-tossing marathon announced on Twitch, you, you know who's behind it. I'm pretty sure my one-year-old daughter would be very happy to do that. She always takes my phone and tosses it uh, uh, from the sofa. Yeah. I need to start recording the results, and then we can uh, uh, we can make the conclusions. Please do, and let us know. We'll do. Now let's move on to today's featured interview, and this is with Anton Volovic, uh, co-CEO at Reface. We sat down together to talk at Textile Milano conference uh, back in September in Italy, and here is the conversation in full for you to enjoy. Anton, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the show. Andres, thank you very much for having me. So uh, first, let's start with uh, with yourself. So who are you? What did you do before uh, you uh, joined Reface? Uh, and uh, what were your ideas? What did you study? Uh, sure. Thank you very much, Andre. So uh, currently, I serve as a co-CEO at Reface, and I've been with the company for uh, two years already. Uh, and before before joining Reface, I worked uh, in finance industry. I worked in investment uh, investment banking and also private equity. Uh, and I also did my MBA right before joining Reface. Okay, that's uh, that's interesting. And how uh, how come uh, that you came from a financial industry into a very sort of entertainment focused uh, app that's very uh, consumer facing? Uh, actually, it was a, a complete uh, accident, I would say, uh, because after after finishing my MBA, I was uh, still thinking of uh, going to an industry I know pretty well, which is investing. And uh, basically, the only reason, which was a very lucky coincidence, as I understand right now, was that uh, my offer that I had uh, from a company was postponed because of COVID, uh, and I had a short period of time to actually internet rephase. And I just messaged uh, founders saying that, hey, guys, uh, I have no idea 
how I can be helpful, but uh, can I can I try to work for you? And I'm definitely going to leave because I have another offer waiting for me, but uh, it would be cool just to try to work in a very different setting. And basically, uh, long story short, uh, I'm still with Reface and extremely happy to be here. Right. And what's the, uh, I've never really understood how does it work uh, for a company to have multiple CEOs? What's the setup like? So we started working uh, in a kind of uh, co-CEO uh, situation uh, starting from this year. Uh, and uh, actually, we, we thought a lot about this decision. Uh, and it's not a very conventional decision, I would say, because if you look at the companies, they are mainly led by one person. Uh, but what we uh, sort of the way how we come up to this decision is that uh, we thought about uh, what would be the kind of uh, end goal, what the reface of our dreams would be in a few years. And uh, we came up to a conclusion that we actually want to build, uh, first of all, a company, which is a sort of a system, a group of people that work together towards a goal and consistently, repeatedly produce successful products and technologies. And at the same time, we also want to work on the kind of uh, atomic level of this bigger system. So basically, all our products are innovative, creative, they have traction, users love them and stuff like that. And uh, actually, my co-CEO, Ivan, and I, we have exactly uh, the right skills to kind of tackle both sides of this equation. I'm, uh, as we call it, I'm a left apart uh, brain of our of our partnership, taking care of strategy, more analytical things, being sort of more rational and objective in many ways. And Ivan takes care of a more creative sort of pushing the limits part uh, in the company. And I think the benefit of this uh, partnership now is that uh, we are two, not one person. So so we basically have twice more time. Uh, we're also quite different. So we can look at uh, different problems from different angles. And also we've proven that we can work together before, because before appoint, uh, appointment of co-CEOs, uh, we worked together for one and a half year being peers in the company. Right. And so uh, Reface then, what, uh, what is it? How did it start? Uh, where is it now? What's the product like? <laughs> So Reface, uh, it's a company which has already been on the market for quite a few years. And uh, I think uh, kind of the period of growth and the point when Reface became famous was uh, summer 2022, when one of our first technologies, FaceSwap, uh, became viral. Uh, all over the globe. Uh, and since then, Reface had uh, a multiple kind of periods in terms of the strategies. So we always had the Reface app, which was an anchor for our business, but we also try to obviously make experience better, deeper, and potentially diversify the different things. And uh, basically now what happens is that uh, over the last year, we are trying to expand Reface horizontally. So now it's a multi-product company. Uh, Reface is one of our six live products, and we also have a very strong innovation pipeline as well, where we constantly test new technologies, uh, products, and basically we're leveraging what we managed to build uh, during a hyperscale growth of Reface back in 2020-21, and we expand with more technologies, which again, uh, point towards entertainment and content creation use cases, and all of them are powered by AI. Right. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, uh, are you still, do you still have the original product around as well, the face swap? We have. We have Reface app and we have a face swap inside, which also uh, undergone a few iterations and um, I would say basically improvements. Uh, but besides that, our main app, Reface, one of, one of the suite of six apps, is now 
not only about Facebook, it's more about a Disneyland with your face. So the vision <laughs> of the product is that, look, we like everyone has a face basically, and we like looking at ourselves, we love experimenting with ourselves, and we want to provide the user a set of tools to basically do really cool things with it. And one of the latest features we added was AI avatars, which was also very, very successful use case for right. us. And who are, your, who are your users? Where are they? So our users are around the globe. Uh, so we actually, like the vision of the company is create uh, easy to use uh, content creation entertainment tools. And I think easy to use is a very important uh, kind of piece in this sentence because we believe that a lot of people needs access to great tools. And currently with uh, such a high pace of the world, uh, so many things happens. Sometimes it's harder for a user to do more things than just click one button. And therefore we do really easy products that we can scale across different geographies, uh, demographic groups, and stuff like that. So, but like, where are they located, these users? And are they most like younger generation? As I've never, I've never seen your product in real life. I've never used uh, like Reface or Restyle or any, uh, or any others. And I haven't really seen a lot of it being used like around me, people by people I know. Uh, I mean, I think it's bad. And I think we need to work <laughs> on that uh, for sure. But um, we uh, target different age groups with different products. So for example, we have one product which has an average age of, I think, 47 years old. Huh which is on the older side. And also our most recent product, Restyle, which is an AI video-to-video -video filter. Uh, we target more sort of late Gen Zs, early millennials. So we try to stack products across different uh, demographic lines, but again, in every product, you can find people from different age groups. And in terms of geographies, uh, we primarily target uh, developed markets, mm -hmm. the US being the most important market for us. Obviously, Europe is very, is very important as well. And uh, obviously, Japan and Korea, I would say they're also quite important. So uh, on the on the peak of your growth uh, trajectory, you also raised money uh, from uh, uh, some of the major uh, major VCs, including Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, uh, are you looking for funding again now? So uh, I would say now we're in an extremely lucky situation of being uh, profitable. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are a relatively large company. We're 190 people. Uh, so ideally, we would not raise. I think uh, currently we don't need to raise because we have enough money to basically fund our growth, fund new uh, technologies and the products we're iterating on. Uh, but uh, maybe at some point in the future, well, we would unlock sort of the point of uh, extreme growth or if we would need to invest way more more in, let's say, backend technology, we would be open to fundraise, but currently we don't do it. So AI, uh, over the past year, at least, we have seen a huge growth and in interest uh, to AI, uh, uh, of course, uh, which is mostly propelled by generative AI, uh, by products like uh, ChatGPT and Bard and uh, so on. Uh, but at the same time, it does feel like it has led to somewhat commoditization of uh, the entire idea and of many platforms uh, that uh, are around in the product. What did all these uh, developments uh, do to reface? Oh, that's a very interesting question. And uh, I think uh, in the last few years, uh, the market changed dramatically. Uh, a few big changes. So the first one is that uh, AI now attracts 
a lot of people, both from the consumer side and also from kind of operating slash building side of things. So you have many more teams uh, basically building products and competing for the same sort of pie. That being said, I think the pie also has grown because uh, with the products, as you've said, ChatGPT, uh, more people started thinking about AI as something cool. And I think we reached a point in technology where people can very quickly see the aha moment. So you, they don't need to like use it for long to understand the beauty. And it actually brings a huge consumer adoption of anything you build. So from one side, you have way more competition. People start building things, they get funding. From another, uh, from another point of view, you see customers and also businesses more open to implement this thing. And the third important point is that now we also see a huge growth of open source community. Mm -hmm. uh, so we see individual developers, we see companies, research institutions, they publish a lot of things, which before would probably be sort of proprietary things that companies do not really want to share. And now it's available across the market. Uh, and it also has impact uh, on Reface's strategy because before for us, it was actually pretty Cool to, to be closed in the garage, obviously, and work for a year on some specific technology. Now it's impossible because someone else would be 100% faster. They will release it to a market and you won't have this competitive mode uh, in the technology side. So the way how we rebuild business is that now we are way more aggressively looking at what's popping up. We, we monitor competitors. We monitor every research paper that being issued. And we also build a special innovation pipeline within Reface where we can super quickly iterate on the technologies we which are outside of the market. And then those where we see traction or find interesting, we can actually improve with the help of our uh, tech team that we have in-house. But are you still utilizing those technologies to create uh, consumer-facing products? Are you still working in this entertainment sort of industry? So uh, that's also an, an interesting point. I think uh, still kind of our core business is a consumer B2C mobile. That's what we know. We know how to earn on this market and we keep working there because there is definitely potential. But on the other side, we also started looking into a very kind of new and now quite hyped thing, which is called LLM agents. Mm -hmm. So basically the idea is that it's possible to create an architecture which would uh, combine multiple LLMs, which would have sort of different prompts as we call it, skills, mm -hmm. and they work as a team to solve more complex, uh, more complex uh, problems where you would need to have reasoning, memory, planning, distribution of workforce attention and stuff like that. And while the core business is still focused on entertainment and consumer use cases, the other part is sort of more working towards this LLM agent space because we think it's kind of an, our R&D unit because that we think that the future is there. And the way how we approach this piece is that we now try to build internal products mm -hmm. for our company reface for a use. And if they manage to be helpful, we will probably open them to the world. So if I'm understanding correctly, you mean that, so you take several instan instances of, for example, ChatGPT, and you say to one instance, okay, so you are becoming a designer and uh, you, another instance is be are becoming a manager and you are becoming a programmer and so on and so forth. And then they work as a team to develop uh, something for you. Exactly, exactly. That's the, that's the idea. Obviously, there is devil in details and uh, quite a few teams are very, very powerful with amazing people working on the same problem, sort of making LLM agents work. And I think no one has actually succeeded to the enterprise grade level of quality. Uh, but the base, base idea is basically try to connect different prompted LLMs into a team and make them work together, make them 
learn and make them remember the same context together. So that's that's the thing. Right. Then uh, I would uh, I would also argue on behalf of some of the VCs I have talked to recently uh, that using uh, someone else's LLM, so basically a product that's developed by another company, is controlled by another company as a basis uh, for your own product, uh, could be a bit of a problem and a weak point uh, for uh, you know, for building a company on top of. So how do, you, how do you solve this? How do you approach this? So I think the way how we, how we look at it is that actually the LLM we want to use as a secondary piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we are more focused uh, in building sort of the application layer on top. Why so? Because I believe that things like ChatGPT, they would become sort of platforms that a lot of people will use. I would, probably a good example would be App Store. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone uses App Store and obviously App Store takes a very big part of value creation, which is the 30% cut. <laughs> Uh, but uh, they, as a business, also want other businesses to build on top of that. Yes. That's one thing. The other thing, there is definitely competition, and you also have really good open source versions that you can fine-tune afterwards if you find it makes sense, mm-hmm. cost-wise mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. performance-wise. Therefore, the way how we do it is that we try to take now off-the-shelf solution, try to find traction, things that work, and then potentially reevaluate whether we can use something maybe cheaper, something maybe own-trained, and stuff like that. But it speed up uh, innovation process considerably and it also does not require that much money to basically bury it in GPUs to train your own stuff before, before you actually know that it works. Yeah, yeah. And you say that you're monitoring what, what else is happening uh, around you on the market. So is there a lot happening? Are there many teams uh, trying to do the same thing as you as you are doing? So uh, as we operate in a few markets and we have six products uh, Everywhere we see competition. We see competition in entertainment, consumer tools such as Reface, Revive, Restyle. We also see competition on teams working in autonomous agents. Uh, And I think the pie will be very, very big in both parts, but uh, obviously not everyone will survive. Uh, And uh, we make everything possible that Reface would be the one who would not only survive, but will lead this industry. But do you see the space uh, heating up? Do you see like bigger players also coming in there with more resources than you have? Uh, that's that's a very good point because what we see right now is actually not only a lot of startups, teams uh, trying to build things and also funding is very available for AI-first companies, uh, which also helps them a lot. Uh, we also see actually incumbents aggressively going into the space. For example, a good example is Adobe and uh, the speed of... Uh, sort of uh, inclusion of Gen AI tools into their suite of uh, products is actually quite quite impressive. Uh, so overall, before there was a point that uh, small companies are faster, maybe they have fewer resources, but they're more focused, they go for an opportunity. At this time, we also see incumbents go and do similar things. So you're, you're definitely moving very fast, but at the same time, uh, of course, uh, Reface is a company that was born in Ukraine that um, has gone through uh, this entire uh, past almost two years of the full-scale invasion. And uh, you said before that about two-thirds of the team are still uh, based in Ukraine. So how have you navigated uh, through uh, all, this, uh, all this time? Uh, it's definitely a challenge, uh, obviously. And uh, I think our team is uh, extremely incredible in terms of how they can uh, basically balance their own things, challenges that happen to them, their families, friends, and also working very hard at Reface. I think what what actually changed, uh, I would say even f- for the better, if, if it's possible to say now, is that everyone at Reface team has a bit more sense of purpose than it was before. 
So even before everyone of us really wanted to build amazing, cool company, Gen AI company from Ukraine, now we have an extra layer of responsibility because we are one of the few companies in Ukraine which are kind of anchors of uh, progress, innovation and stuff. So we also feel this responsibility and it gives, gives us extra push, power and energy uh, to do a bit more every day. Yeah. Do you feel uh, yourselves as like a important important representatives of uh, of the Ukrainian ecosystem uh, for the for a more like global ecosystem for the world right now? Uh, definitely, definitely. We try to be one of the sort of ambassadors of uh, Ukrainian talent and uh, of of people that can build great things out of very challenging geographies, uh, and therefore we actually try hard and do extra mile to make it work. Right, and uh, uh, whom do you have? Uh, whom do you have still in Ukraine? Is it mostly technical team? Uh, what what's the? Uh, so you have offices in Ukraine and in the US, or how does so it work now? we have we have an office uh, in Ukraine, which is like a physical building. It's a five story amazing building next to, it's basically in the city center, next to Andreev's QSVs, uh, and uh, the rest of the team is more sort of uh, working remotely. So we don't have uh, a place where everyone else is uh, connected. This is just easier because w what happened before the war, after the war is that everyone sort of went where they could. And therefore it, it doesn't make sense for us as a company to impose rules or where people would need to, would need to be. Uh, so internationally, we are very remote in Ukraine, we're in Kyiv. Yeah, I understand. And so what uh, what are the plans? What are the immediate plans and more like long term, long term horizon uh, type of planning that you have at this point for the company? So immediate plans, uh, we are working on the few product ideas, uh, which I think will see the market uh, in the Q1 next year. Uh, it may be one idea, it may be three ideas. Let's see. Let's see how it goes, because we constantly have this uh, iteration process and prototyping. Uh, that's one thing. And uh, I think in uh, in 12 months, we would see also Reface uh, going quite far from the original things, uh, as we may speak about entertainment, visual stuff, content creation, uh, into other use cases as well. Because now we are, as a company strategy, we also explore very heavily the LLM space and what it can bring, uh, not only for the autonomous agent part, which I described before, but also for the core products uh, that we built. Do you think you would still uh, stay con this consumer-facing type of company working in this entertainment-ish industry? Uh, again, good question. I think uh, we all at Reface love uh, working with consumers. Uh, so it's much faster because you can bring product uh, faster to market. Uh, it's also very cool when you can start trends on TikTok. You see that people around use your product. Uh, we also use ourselves, our products. So uh, it, consumer consumer products, they, they have its romanticism around it. Uh, but also at the same time, we understand that B2B products sometimes can be uh, more retentive, more valuable. Uh, and actually like way more B2B businesses are successful than the consumer ones. So I would say we're still at heart B2C, but uh, we it not necessarily we draw the line that we will never do B2B. Right, understood. Anton, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, joining the show today. Thank you very much, Andre. It was a pleasure. Once again, big thanks to Anton for finding the time to come on the show. Anton will also be speaking at the TNW conference in Amsterdam this summer on June 2021. We would be very happy to see you at the event, and we've got a special offer for listeners of this podcast. You can use the code TNWXMedia to get 30% off your business pass. There is also a link to the offer in the show notes, so check it out and get your tickets today. 
In the meantime, this is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And Linia, thank you so much for joining once again. Thank you so much for having me. If you like our show, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us almost everywhere. Music and sound engineering for this podcast done by SoundPulse. Feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast at thenextweb.com. Have a great week and we're going to talk to you again next Wednesday. Bye-bye. <laughs>